1: That's 15% off at borough.com slash ACAST.
2: Is it the end of the road for the Prime Minister? I'm Jessica Elgott, Chief Political Correspondent at The Guardian, and this is Politics Weekly.
3: Nobody warned me that it was against the rules. That's it. And nobody told him. Since the Prime Minister wrote the walls, why on earth does he think that this his new defence is going to work for him?
2: Speculation is at fever pitch in Westminster that there will soon be enough letters of no confidence sent to Sir Graham Brady, the chair of the 1922 committee, to trigger a leadership contest and oust Boris Johnson. Only a few names have gone public, but critics are vocal. David Davis, Johnson's former Cabinet colleague, wasn't shy about giving us his view at Prime Minister's questions on Wednesday.
3: So I'll remind him of a quotation altogether too familiar to him, of Leo Amory to Neville Chamberlain. You have sat there too long for all the good you have done. In the name of God, go.
2: <laughs> the final straw for some Tories was a disastrous interview that the Prime Minister gave to Sky News.
3: And nobody warned me that it was against the rules. I can, I'm absolutely categorical about I because I would remember that.
2: He floundered when pushed to defend an accusation by his former advisor Dominic Cummings that not only did he know that a party was happening in Downing Street in May 2020, but that he did know it was against the rules. So despite his best efforts, is it only a matter of time before Johnson leaves Downing Street a fallen leader? And how will all of this change the working culture within Number 10? I speak to two people who spent a lot of time at the Prime Minister's residence who shed some light on what it's actually like to work there. That's all in this week's Politics Weekly. Despite alleged plans to distract the media and the public from Partygate, the Prime Minister is facing his toughest day in office to date. To hear her thoughts on Johnson's chance of survival, I spoke to Guardian columnist Polly Toynbee. It's a big day in Westminster. So I'm in our parliamentary office. So you might hear the shuffles of colleagues around me or some tapping of newspaper articles being written. Polly, it's lovely to have you on. Um, the Prime Minister must have come to absolutely dread Wednesdays, mustn't he? I think this has been his worst
0: Wednesday so far. Uh, it was an utter humiliation. It was an embarrassment to watch. He had you kind of writhing in your seat. He had no answers Keir Starmer was on top form. I haven't seen him so ebullient.
3: Nobody warned me that it was against the rules. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> nobody told him. <laughs> uh, s- Since the prime minister wrote the rules, why on earth does he think that this new
0: defence is going to work for him? I mean, nothing succeeds like success when you're suddenly riding high in the polls. When somebody has just crossed the floor and sat behind you, a Tory
2: MP has become a Labour MP. This was his best moment by far. I think we've probably got to discuss that sort of big breaking story which happened just before our chat, which is the defection of Christian Wakeford, the the MP for Bury South.
3: Mr Speaker, the Labour Party has changed and so has the Conservative Party. He and anyone else who wants to build a new Britain built on decency, security, prosperity and respect is welcoming my Labour Party
2: extraordinary. Uh, I mean, we had a few defections, actually, mainly to the Liberal Democrats and Change UK that seemed like a lifetime ago over the last parliament, but a straight Tory to Labour switch, you know, was a long time ago. And Quentin Davis, I think the last one, you know, it seems a red wall MP with a small majority, you know, with so much said about how Boris Johnson, you know, won those seats with his with his appeal. It feels so extraordinary, doesn't it?
0: It feels amazing. It's very rare. It usually... Ends badly for the person involved. It's not a very good political move, but nevertheless, it makes, it gives a huge bounce to an opposition when that happens, particularly as there are so many Red Wall Tory members who have very small majorities and whose majorities now look absolutely wiped away by the state of the current opinion polls if they were to stay anything like this. So I'm not surprised they're all panicking. A lot of them are new first timers. So they're less used perhaps to the ups and downs of opinion polling midterm and probably feel it's terminal. We
2: don't know if it is or isn't, but it feels that way to them. I was talking to someone today who was saying, you know, you know, a bit of an older head who was saying, these MPs are getting 1000 2000 letters in their inbox. And that's what's really panicking them. And they just haven't, you know, had a long enough experience to realise that 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 can happen in the ups and downs of politics. And they should just kind of try and keep cool and keep an assessment. But unfortunately, a lot of them seem to see this as the moment to panic. Do you think it is similar to other crises that prime ministers have faced? Or is it different? And that's why they've they've wobbled so early?
0: I think everything feels quite different. I think this is a more febrile time in politics, wouldn't you agree, than anything we've experienced. It feels quite wild and everything feels a bit unprecedented. I mean, I think ever since Boris Johnson was selected as leader, everything has felt unprecedented. He's unpredictable, maverick, odd in many ways, and you never quite know what's going to happen next. I don't think, though, that it's just these, you know, younger red wallers, uh, greenhorns who don't know the ropes. There are an awful lot of older people I've talked to on the Tory benches who are despairing as well. So uh, it's not just them.
2: Before we get on to sort of talking about how today might go, it certainly got to a fever pitch, didn't it, on Tuesday night. Um, after this meeting of these 2019 MPs, there was a feeling like the number of no confidence letters being sent to Sir Graham Brady was imminent. How much do you think the atmosphere in Westminster contributes to that feeling? You know, that people get overexcited, they suddenly they talk to two or three colleagues and they suddenly feel, oh, the tide has turned. And how much does that, you know, become a self-fulfilling prophecy?
0: certainly does. I think uh, Boris Johnson might wish he'd reversed his policy and had working from home and sent them all back to their constituencies with less plotting, less fever, less bars and tea room chatter. But I think it would be like this anyway. I mean, the the turnaround in the polls has been so sudden, so abrupt, so dramatic. And although, yes, opposition leaders have had uh, higher scores than this and gone on to lose – there feels something special about this time. When you get people like Professor John Curtis, the great pollster guru, saying he doesn't think anybody can recover from a plummet, a plunge, such as Boris Johnson has seen in his ratings, uh, it really looks as if it's curtains for him, as if it's totally unlikely he could himself win another election. But of course, you know, these are unprecedented times.
2: There are clearly, aren't there, people who... Would not like to see, even those who are no fans of Boris Johnson, would not like to see a vote of no confidence launched now within the next 24 hours, 48 hours, because Boris Johnson has a defence then, doesn't he? He could say, no one's seen Sue Gray's report into my lockdown breaches. You haven't seen the full evidence yet. You can't act as jury before before seeing it all, then lots of MPs might take that on board, mightn't they? I think so. And it might be a
0: mistake for any plotters to go too soon, not to wait until they've got the absolute maximum number they could possibly get. And an awful lot of people might be sitting on the fence saying, well, wait for Sue Gray. I mean, wait for Sue Gray has become a meme on the internet, it makes people laugh, it shows pictures of people doing terrible things saying, I can't say if I did it until Sue Gray reports. Uh, and it's become a great joke. Whatever she does is unlikely to exonerate him altogether. She may not point any fingers, but it somehow seems from the evidence so far, very unlikely that it lets him off scot-free. But I think the plotters probably would be better to wait. It would look more dignified until she has done her reporting.
2: To say that there has to be 54 letters, Polly, we don't actually know Who a lot of them are. Some of them are from the 2019 intake, including Christian Wakeford, which means that now actually there's one less letter for for Sir Graham Brady. A few of them are longtime critics of of Johnson, like uh, Tim Loughton or William Ragg. But most people keep it uh, anonymous, don't they? No, but there have been stories which are interesting that those who have gone public have been
0: scuttling along to Graham Brady's office, handing in letters for other people. They have to be handed in in person, but it doesn't say by what person. So they may have been handing in bundles from other people. I mean, probably not, but uh, certainly people are watching Graham Brady's door to see who's coming and going. Going too soon would be a big mistake, and maybe some of these Green Hall MPs, haven't properly thought of the consequences if they just miss uh, and to shoot at the leader and just miss and have a wounded stag for at least another year when they can't try again for a year could be a very bad mistake indeed. I think they better hold their fire. It's probably only a week or so.
2: Theresa May famously survived her no confidence vote in December 2018. I mean, she did have to resign within a year because, you know, her position became untenable. But do you think Boris Johnson would even be able to face a no confidence vote? If one's called, do you think it's possible, Polly, that he, he wouldn't want the humiliation of going through with it?
0: I think he'll hang in there. I think even if he would quite like to be out of this by now, he'll wait and hope something turns up Billy Bunter-like, something turns up in time to give him a dignified exit at some point. I don't think he'll want to leave in a way that would be utterly humiliating now.
2: What are, What is chances of surviving a no confidence vote if he faces one? To a certain extent, he's got a lot of people in the party who think he's not fit to be prime minister. And they might think, you know, unlike with Theresa May, where there was a lot of people who thought the, the alternative was worse. You've got a lot of people who might think, you know what, the alternatives are all not that bad. So we may as well make the change. Yes, indeed, they have alternatives, Um, but there may be quite a lot of argument about who the
0: alternative should be. I mean, the best hope for somebody hanging in there is that there will be huge friction between the Rishi Sunakites and the Liz Trussites and maybe the Jeremy Huntites and a few others too, Uh, a few other dark horses there who who might really come up on the rails. His best hope is that they can't agree on an alternative. And the ideological differences are not great, but the character
2: differences are great in
0: the putative candidates.
2: So with all of this in the background, Polly, how did he perform at PMQs? I mean, it was a definitely less contrite boris johnson the last week you know going after starmer for having a a a bottle of beer saying you know he's wasting people's time there were some old hits about you know starmer is in charge we still be in lockdown mr speaker
3: if we'd listened to the right honorable gentleman about about covid restrictions which is the substance uh, of his question uh, then then mr speaker we would still be uh, we would have been in lockdown
0: after july His heart didn't really seem to be in it. There wasn't nearly as much bounce and bluster as usual. You felt these were token gestures. Uh, I think he was fairly broken compared to his usual performances. And up against Starmer, who really was at his most ebullient and most self-confident. Mr. Speaker,
3: I see. I see the very noise. I'm sure the chief whippers told them to bring their own booze. Huge noise
0: in the. Commons great rabble-rising sense that this was a historic moment this was a historic PMQs that helped Starmer a lot and I think Boris was going through the paces really I don't think he you know when he starts saying things like we vaccinated you vacillated and that just doesn't work old line uh, old story.
2: And we, we had you know another Big moment when David Davis, the former cabinet minister, said to Johnson that he should go. Those kind of big moments are are things that set the momentum off again, don't they? Where people feel they've got cover to send in those letters and and, and encourages more, even if people are silent.
0: Yes, great moment for the famous old grandstanders, and David Davis is certainly one of those. And for God's sake,s go! There's a good old parliamentary uh, ring to it, though it gets used an awful lot these days. It's a bit of a chestnut. David Davis is quite significant as a character to be telling him to to go, uh, and probably carries quite a bit of weight, or will will certainly fire up quite a few people who are thinking that way. Each time a figure like this joins in the opposition to Boris Johnson, his position becomes even wobblier.
2: And obviously, earlier this week, you know, Boris Johnson is facing these accusations from, you know, his former chief aide turned nemesis. Dominic Cummings, who's agreed to be interviewed by Sue Gray, that could set the inquiry off into all sorts of sprawling directions, couldn't it? Because he's the man who's got a huge amount of evidence of, of lots of events that he says or claims on his on his sub stack haven't been uncovered yet. The great Avenger, uh, who
0: was often over in the past, though, saying he's got this, that and the other and hasn't actually come up with it. When he's interviewed by Sue Gray, he will have to give her everything he has. There's no way that he can hold something back and then later come out with it. Uh, so we'll see. You know, this time it's it, he's got to show his hand. It's probably a pretty strong hand, and he probably has a, an awful lot of ammunition of all kinds. I mean, maybe he'll only tell her about parties, but of course, there's a lot more he knows. Nothing to do with parties that may be very damning. He doesn't do himself any good. Or who on earth would employ that man now? But nevertheless, if revenge is what he really wants, he's probably going to get
2: it. We've got to end talking about, you know, in the run up to this week. You know, Johnson's strategy, which I think, you know, by the evidence we've seen at PMQs, has not worked well, has been this Operation Red Meat to try and you know distract the public, to win back the support on a policy agenda of lots of his MPs. These new policies, including scrapping the BBC licence fee, sending uh, migrants to Ghana, which uh, the, the Ghanaian government seems pretty annoyed about, you know getting the Navy to patrol the Channel and ending all COVID restrictions, including, as we reported, probably from March, repealing the Coronavirus Act. Do you think anything in this strategy has worked? Because some of these are actually big policies. No, none of them have
0: worked. The red meat turned into rotten meat overnight. Uh, They'd obviously grabbed at anything they could get their hands on. It does suggest an extremely bad operation inside Downing Street that they hadn't checked, for instance, with Ghana, that they hadn't checked, that last time the, the Navy was called in to push back boats, it didn't work and it cost a fortune. As for the BBC, his own cabinet rebelled. We hear that Rishi Sunak, Therese Coffey, objected strongly to the idea that Nadine Doris should just tweet out this is the last license fee. No discussion in cabinet. No discussion anywhere. Just on a
2: whim, this fundamental crushing of the BBC, and even they wouldn't have it. It's not as if a government hasn't, you know, tried to take the national broadcaster on, you know, a few times before. I mean, Thatcher also had a go just before leaving office. How much would you bet that this is the end of the license fee, or at least there is, you know, a new kind of settlement on the horizon? It's it's going to be a different political landscape, isn't it, in twenty twenty eight. Well, it's a different
0: landscape because of the, the cuts. It's had a 30% cuts since 2010 already, now getting another 258 million cuts. It really will bite into programming. But I think what we've seen is a sense that at your peril, you destroy this national treasure. You may cut it back, but there comes a point where to say, all right, we're no longer going to have universal access to the most fundamental elements of broadcasting in this country, uh, the most respected broadcaster in the world, most uh, used website in the world, um, I think that they're beginning to draw back a bit, as Thatcher did um, you know the bbc is always the whipping boy because it is the only national platform uh, and it has to be impartial that is a very difficult thing to define it's always in the eye of the beholder you know your biases my impartiality and so on nevertheless i think what we've seen with this pretty useless tweeted out attack on it is that the government is drawing back and saying hang on a minute I'm not sure we've got the support here all the people who listen to the archers they're all our people I think uh, some
2: demographics have come in here and they've taken fright. So much more that we could talk about but thank you so much Polly for joining me. Thank you. After the break we look at what it's really like working in number 10. Is it all fun and games or do they get any work done? We'll be right back. Welcome back to Politics Weekly. I'm Jessica Elgott, the Chief Political Correspondent for The Guardian. It's almost become expected now, the daily revelations of parties and drinks being held in Downing Street during lockdown. And in defending the Prime Minister over the last week, we've heard ministers blame bad decisions on a general working culture that allowed for these missteps, rather than it landing solely at the feet of Boris Johnson. So are parties just part and parcel of working where the Prime Minister lives? I spoke to Sonia Khan, the former advisor to Sajid Javid when he was at the Treasury, who was famously marched out of the job by Dominic Cummings, and Stuart Wood, Labour peer and former advisor to Gordon Brown. Both of you, thanks ever so much for joining me. You've both worked in closely or closely with Number 10. I think it'd be great to sort of shed some light on what the culture of working there is like, which I'm sure is different under different prime ministers. And Stuart, when you worked in Number 10 during Gordon Brown's tenure, how did your team relax after a long day at the office?
4: There wasn't much relaxing going on. We only had three years, and two of those were consumed with uh, serious crises of various sorts, including the global crash. But yeah, look, we, there were definitely there are evenings we went down to the pub. There are lo- loads of pubs in the area, and we would occasionally go and and uh, either celebrate someone's birthday or just have a drink at the end of a week. But you know, the pub was the place for drinking. And uh, I'm not just being puritanical. There weren't hidden fridges and hidden stashes. And uh, I mean, it's partly because of the atmosphere. As you say, every number ten is different. And Gordon Brown's number ten was very. Incredibly intense, partly because of the times we lived in with the global economic crash, and partly because of his character. And it's a strange job because you're sort of waiting to go and see the prime minister whenever the prime minister wants you to talk to them, and otherwise you've got way too many things to get through in the rest of your day. So, without sounding like Goody Two Shoes, I just don't recognise the idea of there being lots of casual drinking going on left, right, and centre.
2: Sonny, what was your what was your experience of it? I mean, obviously, most of the time that you worked in number 11 it was under Theresa May actually and, and Philip Hammond I mean was there more of a culture around that time then similarly incredibly intense pressures as Stuart described um, this time over the Brexit negotiations.
5: Yeah that's true I mean I was also a junior civil servant at number 10 under David Cameron for about a year so um, I've got experiences on both sides and you probably see a lot more when you're held to account on a lot less um, which is kind of drinks at the end of the week um, kind of near the press team um, lots of kind of snacks lots of celebrations I think the, the the thing that sort of sticks out from what Stuart said is that it's a real kind of team atmosphere you get to know everyone in that building you get to know all their lives and so there is a real or when I was there, there was a real effort in celebrating any big moments in people's lives because they couldn't really go out and uh you know go to weddings or go to um events that most people would enjoy because the pressure was so intense and a lot of people would work seven days a week so there was kind of a real team effort to bring people together and that was often kind of with drinks um sometimes and I would say it happened very uh kind of infrequently you would find people who had drinks kind of throughout the week depending on how stressful their job was and I worked in a few different teams I saw a, a few different ways of celebrating or dealing with stress
2: what did it mean to, to kind of celebrate things? There was more of a culture, was there, of kind of longer working hours? I'm sure that Stuart has worked from incredibly long hours during his time there. But having a drink at your desk as a way to kind of relieve some of the tension of that hours rather than saying, OK, we'll have this occasional pub trip to celebrate someone's birthday.
5: Yeah, I mean, I think it was seen as a way of decompressing. Um I've said before that often it was sandwiched between calls or emails, or it was kind of a quick break away. I think that there was kind of a real savviness that came perhaps later on, maybe after a kind of some of the Labour Prime Ministers, which was, or maybe it was actually a fear rather than savviness of going to the pub and getting people really drunk and them kind of spilling their secrets and state secrets or dropping papers in front of journalists or people from opposition parties. So, actually the building felt like a safe space for people to decompress and you know complain about their week or how they felt that someone treated them or just to talk things through um, and and whatever else.
2: Stuart can you understand and I'll ask you this Sonia as well how during the pandemic when lots of civil servants were working from home that there might have been this kind of misunderstanding about how the public would judge things going on inside Number 10, that there was a one official described to me as a saviour complex that, that people got inside Number 10 because they were going in, they felt they were doing the most important work in the country. This culture developed where they felt like they were in their own bubble and could socialise with each other, even though they were, because they were working next to each other. Can you understand how that, that develops?
4: Well, I think it's, it's psychologically understandable, but it's also wrong. And I think it's really importantly wrong because because of this extraordinary, unique situation in the pandemic. You know, For the first time, really, since the Second World War, we had a prime minister in our living rooms every day, literally every day through the press conference and through clips, telling us what we could do in our daily lives and what we couldn't do. And there was, in general, an incredible amount of consent behind that amazing intrusion into the normal contract between people and their politicians. But precisely because of that being the most unusual situation, it, it was just incredibly important that someone, it only took one person, it, senior and number 10, to sort out the basic ground rules of, of how people there behave. I find it absolutely astonishing. Not that, not that people didn't stray every now and then to have a drink. I think that's, you know, these things happen and most people don't understand that. But that there wasn't a framework of understanding where you could do it, when you could do it, what you mustn't do, what lines not to cross. I find that totally astonishing.
2: There has been a discussion, hasn't there, that this culture comes from the top, that that kind of lax getting away with what you can rules comes from the personality of Boris Johnson. And it sounds like actually there were, you know, a kind of a more relaxed uh, approach to drinking at work, um, for example, under David Cameron and under May. But, you know, do you think that ultimately things... seem to have from your perspective have, have got worse Dominic Cummings claims in the post his era of, of iron discipline although a, a few of these events seem, seem to have taken place while he was there.
5: I think it had gotten worse but to the extent that people felt that the building was safer and therefore perhaps standards were slightly different I mean you're less likely to behave in, or in a certain way at the pub than you would in a building where everyone kind of feels like an extension of your family uh, and, uh, and that's not to justify it but I just want to help you perhaps understand what the mentality is like there and if you're surrounded by people who are um, sharing the same experiences and doing the same thing as you and no one senior is kind of telling you otherwise then you you can understand why it feels like what you're doing is is therefore very normal and maybe it's not a rule-breaking activity but I think it's not just about some are making a stand regardless of who they are politically, but it's about the senior civil servants uh, in number 10 or so, parting some discipline in terms of how that building is run.
2: There are things that kind of stick out in the details, you know, people breaking a child's swing or wheeling in a suitcase of, of booze or, or clubbing together to buy a drinks fridge. I mean, at some point during those kinds of incidents that seem to have happened on multiple occasions, no one ever stopped and thought, actually, is this Going a bit too far.
5: Up until now, these stories haven't been mainstream. And for a long time, kind of whilst the pandemic had started and was happening, we didn't know about them. Um, and I think that fed into some of the behaviors and actions that we have seen, like hiding alcohol in suitcases and storing it in um, weird and wonderful places in that building. So I think it, it was probably one of those where they felt like we can continue to get away with this because no, nobody knows.
4: And to the question, you know, would this have happened under any regime? Yeah, Gordon Brown, who I worked for, had lots and lots of faults. And I'll be the first, first to talk about the things that we got wrong in our time there. But I'll tell you exactly what had happened. If Friday Night Party had happened and Gordon Brown had stumbled on it, he would have he would have given everyone the P45s on the spot. And he would have done it out of self-interest and out of it being the right thing to do. And I think the lack of taking action after a year and a half or more of this, of various incidents, is, is the other really astonishing thing.
2: And Sonia, how do you think... Other prime ministers you worked for would have reacted. What would have happened if if David Cameron had walked into that uh, party during a lockdown or or if Theresa May had?
5: I mean, I think if it had happened during Covid, both of them were were pretty savvy in terms of knowing how the public would react. So I imagine they would have been as hardliners Gordon Brown. But I, I think if it wasn't during Covid times and it was egregious, then maybe they'd given people a second chance after having come down on them.
2: I mean Sonia does it does it surprise you that we haven't yet seen obviously we've got the Sue Gray inquiry to come but we haven't yet seen anyone you know decide that they want to resign that they want to take responsibility apart from Allegra Stratton whose joke was in that video that was that was leaked to ITV news that she didn't actually attend the party herself But yet we've got, you know, multiple people named Martin Reynolds, the principal private secretary, the chief of staff, Dan Rosenfeld. We've got Jack Doyle, the director of communications, you know, all part of of some of these stories you know, they still seem to be in, in post, um, you know, the, the PM apparently turned down doors resignation.
5: Part of it might be the fact that no one really wants to take responsibility or they don't quite feel like it's their fault. And, and maybe some of that's because they feel like it's a culture that has existed kind of long before them. I think some of it might be, well, actually, it's, it's a civil service process rather than a political process. So we'll blame it on this group of people rather than the other group, which may play a part of it. I mean, I should say I haven't spoken to any of these people, so I don't know their rationale. But that to me feels like it might be perhaps one of the underlying reasons. And We've kind of touched on this briefly,
2: Stuart. It has been quite astonishing that much of this hasn't come out before. Given the numbers of people involved in lots of the different parties, and given the number of people who have left Downing Street under a cloud, does it surprise you that, that this hasn't leaked before?
4: I think probably initially, people didn't think that anything was wrong. You, you just sort of gradually drift into agreeing to have a Friday night then you think it's in the garden it must be okay and Sonia said earlier that inside number 10 it's a different world so it might sound odd to people outside it but I can understand that that lack of connection between the life you live and the lives you're telling other people to live at the beginning but then after a while it becomes clear when there's interest in what goes on inside number 10 I think there's probably then a kind of collective mentality of oh my god I hope this doesn't come out Once there was a a kind of a a rift in the family of the number 10 senior advisors, it's very easy for these things then to unravel.
2: Thank you both ever so much. Thank you. Thank you. And that's all from us this week. If you want to learn more about the woman tipped as one of the favourites to replace Johnson if he goes, Liz Truss, then listen to Tuesday's episode of our sister podcast Today in Focus, as I tell Nasheen Iqbal everything about her past that may well inform her future. And in Politics Weekly Extra on Friday, as Joe Biden marks his first year in the Oval Office, Jonathan Friedland speaks to Erin Haynes about what black voters, who were key to his presidential victory, think of his first year as president. But for now, I want to thank our guests, Polly Toynbee, Sonia Khan and Stuart Wood. The producer is Amelia Janssen and I'm Jessica Elgott. Thanks, as always, for listening.